It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I'm rather excited about this particular title, The Man of the Moment. And I've, sw- I've I've sort of flipped the title around multiple times. I had the moment of the man, and then I switched it to the man of the moment. Uh, I've had actually some other options too. And for those of you that know me, know that I I really take my titles seriously. Uh, but the man of the moment, it's interesting because in war there are moments that cause men to melt. That same moment that causes a man to melt can cause the man next to him to rise up and prove a hero. And I've oftentimes thought that through in my own manhood, that I have the propensity to prove myself <laughs> the coward, and I, I feel it inside of me. You know, when I, when, I, when I hear of different circumstances where men did rise up, I sort of think, well, what would I have done? And yet what I desire, and I think there's many of you out there, you don't have to be a man to desire this, that just desire to take those key moments in life that you cannot predict are coming. They just sort of show up at your doorstep and to leverage them unto a true picture of heavenly heroism, where out of that moment is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the very way he handled his moments. Jesus had certain moments where we look back at that grand story of of God himself coming to this earth and living in a human body. And we look at his life and we're like, oh, wow, he handled that moment so well. That temptation in the wilderness and how he is going to stand firm and not do what most of us would do, which is sell the whole thing away for the kingdoms of this earth. Instead, he is going to stand true and stand strong. But of course, Gethsemane, what a moment when he is feeling the crushing weight of the responsibility he has, the assignment that he is carrying, even desiring for that cup to pass. But he is going to rise up with the power of God in that moment to overcome. And of course, can you think of a greater moment than the cross? And where he could call down a legion of angels, instead he is going to submit to the Father and he is going to be crushed. And there are these moments in our lives as men and women where what is required is something beyond human capacity. It is a spiritual empowerment, a spiritual enablement. And so this particular message is going to go through a key moment in 1940, which is what we've been headed towards this entire time. And that's what the series is. There's going to be something that is going to change in 1940. We have a breakdown of a culture known as Great Britain, where they are going to appease Hitler. They are going to allow darkness to rise and to begin to uh, move throughout uh, Europe. And as we went through in the last one, you know, they're going to begin conscription and the allies will do nothing. Then they're going to move their troops into the Rhineland and France and Great Britain will do nothing. Then they're going to seize Austria by force. And again, the allies do nothing. Then they're going to uh, negotiate and promise peace if, if the allies will give them the Sudetenland. And the allies give them the Sudetenland, which is a portion of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, meanwhile, is hindered and and weakened through that and then is going to be invaded, even though Hitler promised to not invade Czechoslovakia. He is going to then invade Czechoslovakia, and then World War II is going to begin with the invasion of Hitler into Poland. 
And that's going to begin something known as the Twilight War, where war is declared, but nothing is really happening. World War I is going to start with a frenzy. World War II is going to start with Hitler taking territory, taking more territory, taking even more territory, and then a declaration of war, and then a very awkward silence. And it's called the Twilight War. And then that is going to break on May 10th of 1940, a key moment in history where Germany is going to invade Belgium and Holland and World War II, as we know it, is going to explode. In Great Britain, we have something that takes place inside of our souls too, where we've had an appeasement campaign and Neville Chamberlain has been running the show as prime minister. And there comes a point when you begin to realize that that way of living that you have been walking in and when you've been allowing darkness to encroach and encroach and encroach upon your soul is not the way you want to live. And that needs to change. And you need to put a man in charge that actually will do something. Of course, for the believer, that man in charge is Jesus Christ. When you're trying to pull your own Neville Chamberlain life, and you're trying to say, hey, I have this in control, peace, peace at all costs, what needs to happen is Jesus Christ needs to stride into that, uh, that key room of, of, of control in your life and take the seat, and he needs to become the prime minister. And that's what we're going to see in this story is Winston Churchill is going to step in and it's a pretty cool uh, storyline. But uh, part five, the man of the moment. This is a quote, uh, and it could apply to a lot of great men throughout history. This particular quote was applied to William Wallace. And if you know the story of Ellerslie, Ellerslie is the birthplace of William Wallace. And it is not a terrible mixture of the names Eric and Leslie, by the way, which was a horrifying thought when someone brought that up. It's like, oh, what a creative mixture of your names. I was like, what? No, 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 no. We are not. We, we did not do that. And uh, so Ellerslie or William Wallace has always played a, a significant role in our formation. So, you know, our unspoken description of our environment is the, the birthplace of heroes. When William Wallace uh, married uh, Marion, he, he named uh, his estate Ellerslie, and that's what Edward burned to the ground. But it was the place where a hero was born, a hero was forged, and that's what we desire to be here uh, in this environment. So there was a student, and I cannot remember which student this was, and if this student just happens to be hearing this, I just want to say a special thank you for this quote, because I've used this quote many times. I've been blessed by this quote. But this is, I want to say, like the seven, six or 700-year anniversary of William Wallace and uh, the, the Sterling Castle uh, event. And so it's called the Sterling Celebration in 1897. And Archibald Primrose, isn't that a great name? Archibald Primrose, he was the Earl of Rosebery, isn't that great? Uh, he gave a speech and he was talking about William Wallace, but I just want you to hear his words and I want them to stir inside of you. I, I, I don't know, I've only lived in one body, right? I've only been through this life once and I know how this type of a quote impacts me. I'm not sure how it impacts others, but I'm gonna throw it out there with the hope that it does impact you the way it impacts me. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires 
whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and outcome of the storm. That is an amazing quote. And that's just a portion of it. That's just the portion that I've always sort of lifted out and said, okay, listen to this, guys. But it stirs me because, first of all, what I see in that is I see Jesus. He is, in the juncture in the affairs of men, there was wanted a man, which is why I capitalized it. Because what was needed in all of history, I mean, the Jews prayed for it. They awaited this man to come. And we, though as Gentiles, we didn't know to even wait uh, for this man to come. What was wanted, what was needed, was a man. And yet in a microcosm of that, in every circumstance in life, what is needed is that strong man to rise up that is congenial to the crisis. In other words, his capacity is built to match the need of the moment. If you've ever looked around today, you sort of feel like that sort of strong leader that has the character to match the challenge is missing. It causes you to feel thin and unstable. And what is needed in the affairs of men are these sorts of men and women that rise up and match wits with the challenges of their day. So I just took out this phrase, what is wanted is a man. Imagine that was posted, you know, on, uh, you know, every tree in, in the, uh, in the country, you know, so just like the olden days where they would tap a, a note to the tree. What is wanted is a man. Are you the one to respond to that? Now, I know some of you are ladies and you're like, uh, not really. However, what this is asking for is what is wanted is someone in whom the man dwells in such a capacity, in such a way that he has made that man or woman strong for the hour, that they have the capacity that is congenial to the crisis. I love that statement. In other words, it is matching. It is in agreement with the crisis, and it doesn't melt before it. Ugh, boy, this is good stuff. So I have just a few illustrations of this. Of course, it's speaking originally of William Wallace. William Wallace was offered the kingship of Scotland, and yet he refused it. I think it was like two or three times because he knew that uh, Robert the Bruce was the rightful king and he would not claim something that was not his own. He was a servant to Bruce. He would not take what was rightfully Bruce's. But he was exactly what was needed for Scotland in such a way that you look back in history, look backwards, and you're just like, whoa, where did that guy come from? He was such an amazing fit for the time and for the crisis. George Washington uh, I know these guys fall under uh, a different sort of lens today and everyone wants to find flaw or fault, but I have a tendency to still look at the amazing virtue side. And, you know, because I, I recognize they're men. They weren't Jesus. They were men. And yet they were, they had a capacity that was congenial to the crisis. And you look at early American history and you just stand in awe of George Washington if he had wanted to become king of America, he could have been. When they were looking for the first president, they knew. Everyone looked around at Continental Congress. They knew exactly who they wanted. They wanted George Washington. But what's interesting, the reason they wanted George Washington is because George Washington did not want the job. In fact, when they came to him and offered him the presidency, he declined it. 
No way. Why would I want that? I do not want leadership. Just let me retire. And that intrigued the nation all the more. You see, what we want are men to lead us that don't really want to lead. They're not looking for the power. They're willing to serve. And that was George Washington. And of course, one of my great heroes, Winston Churchill, uh, and this is the story that sort of draws out uh, his rise to power. But what a what a unique man he was. Uh, and so he's going to step onto the scene because of this crisis. So May 8th, 1940. Now, I've already said that May 10th, 1940 is the day of invasion when the Twilight War ends. Well, I'm going to lead up to that with May 8th, 1940. I'm calling this the vote to remove Chamberlain. Uh, Great Britain is at a crisis point. Their government is at a crisis point where they recognize they have blown it. Now, they, anytime you've blown it as a nation, you want a scapegoat. You want someone to blame that blowing it on. And of course, Neville Chamberlain was the ideal suspect for this. And so I have on the screen, it says, this guy must go. I actually sort of feel for Neville Chamberlain. I, I, I sort of like the guy. Maybe it's because I identify with him. I feel like <laughs> there's a, a bit of Neville Chamberlain in me. I'm the ultimate diplomat, the ultimate nice guy. And Winston Churchill is just so much clearer thinking in this situation. He sees the evil. He knows what to do with it. And Neville Chamberlain, whereas he may be awakening to that evil, he still desires peace and as I've studied Neville Chamberlain, I know he's wrong, and I do not want to support him, and yes, I do believe we should vote him out of office, but I do understand him in a strange way, and I appreciate certain aspects of him that are not wrong. They were just wrong for the moment. They were not, what his capacity was not congenial to the crisis, and what was wanted was a man, very different than Chamberlain. What, what Great Britain needed was Winston Churchill. They needed a man who was ready to do what it took to stop this evil. And so I have a, <laughs> a photo on the screen. If you're, if you're getting this via audio, you're missing a very interesting photo, and that's uh, Neville Chamberlain shaking hands with a smiling Hitler. And I say underneath it, these photos weren't helping. Uh, that's an understatement. When, when you're like, no, I'm standing against Hitler, and then they start broadcasting photos like this, it's an interesting photo for me because I I don't know that I've ever seen Hitler look like a nice guy, except for in this photo. In that photo, I have to admit, even with his little furry mustache, he looks sort of like a nice guy. Like, hey, I would like that guy. Uh, and I, he wasn't a nice guy. And don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to re, uh, reframe him in history. But it just is an interesting photo to me. And it's just, it's more pleasant than we're used to seeing. But this wasn't going over well because it was pretty obvious to all of Great Britain that Hitler was not a nice guy. He does not deserve our pleasantries. He does not deserve to be listened to. He deserves to be stopped. Lloyd George, who will eventually become prime minister, in this time when Neville Chamberlain was prime minister, he takes the, the floor and says, I say solemnly that the prime minister should give an example of sacrifice because there is nothing which can contribute more to victory in this war than that he should sacrifice the seals of office. In other words, if we're going to win this thing, it's because Neville Chamberlain is going to step down. We cannot win it with him in power. So I'm going to call this the moment of the man. Now I'm going to bring up multiple moments throughout these upcoming days that are very telling of this man named Winston Churchill, who I'm going to say he, he had the 
capacity which was congenial to the crisis. And this first moment, I think, is a surprising one, and many people that even know World War II history may not know this, and that is on May 8th, 1940, he is chosen by his party to actually stand up and defend the prime minister. Now, he has been the biggest pain in the prime minister's side for the past six years, and yet he is chosen, out of all the people, to actually stand up and defend the prime minister to try and maintain peace and order in the government. And he does it. This is an amazing thing, that he is actually going to fight to maintain the order and the peacefulness of the British government so that they can stand united and form a national government to stand against Hitler. So here's Winston Churchill. He said, I had volunteered to wind up the debate, which was no more than my duty, in loyalty to the chief under whom I served. I did my very best to regain control of the house for the government in the teeth of continuous interruption. Several times the clamor was such that I could not make myself heard. Yet all the time it was clear that their anger was not directed against me, but at the prime minister, whom I was defending to the utmost of my ability. When I sat down at 11 o'clock, the house divided. To me, that actually shows his character almost more than most of the things throughout his career, even though it's not maybe as dramatic of a thing. It just shows something to me that he knows what to fight for, and he's looking to win this thing, and he recognizes that to win this battle against Hitler, everyone needs to work together. So he is willing, even though he knows that this prime minister, Neville Chamberlain, has blown it, has blown it, has blown it. He doesn't agree with one thing he has done over these past six years, but he does believe that Neville Chamberlain is a good man and that Neville Chamberlain has awakened from his stupor and he is ready to do what is necessary. And so he stands by him. Isn't that an amazing statement? So this was spoken to the Prime Minister, uh, Chamberlain, you know, Neville Chamberlain, in private immediately following the vote. One of the fun things about history is that you can go into memoirs and actually sort of get in. It's like I can walk into this private meeting and listen in as a fly on the wall. And Winston Churchill was there. So he could tell you what he said in this private moment. And this is what he said to Neville Chamberlain. This has been a damaging debate, but you have a good majority. Do not take the matter grievously to heart. Strengthen your government from every quarter and let us go on until our majority deserts us. Now, it's interesting because in the upcoming days, Winston Churchill is going to replace Neville Chamberlain, but not because he chose to do it. And it's just interesting to see his loyalty unto the end. He's standing for England and he believes this is the best thing he can do for Great Britain. So on the screen, it says the moment of the man. Now, I know on a previous screen, it said the same. However, this is another moment of the man. Churchill learns that he may be called on to lead the nation in its time of greatest peril. May 9th, 1940. Now, what has happened over these past five, six years is the British government has dismantled. It has given up uh, all of its military strength. It has forsaken its position of power. And in a sense, has handed over all the power and controls of Europe to Adolf Hitler. This is the worst moment. In fact, many people, when they study history, could look at ebbs and flows of history. If you were going to actually take the leadership of a nation, this would literally rank as one of the top in all of history as being one of the worst moments in history to inherit a government. And Winston Churchill is learning at this exact time that he may be called upon to lead, its, to lead this nation in its time of greatest peril. 
That is a moment for a man whose capacity is congenial to the crisis. Here's Winston Churchill in his memoirs. I do not remember exactly how things happened during the morning of May 9, but the following occurred. Sir Kingsley Wood was very close to the Prime Minister as a colleague and a friend. They had long worked together in complete confidence. From him, I learned that Mr. Chamberlain was resolved upon the formation of a national government, and if he could not be the head, he would give way to anyone commanding his confidence who could. Thus, by the afternoon, I became aware that I might well be called upon to take the lead. The prospect neither excited nor alarmed me. I think there are these defining moments, like when I think of the most defining moment, which would be sort of a similar thing like this, would be in a trench when the men are called to go over the top, which means they need to come out of that out of that trench, which is their cover from, you know, the fire, the machine guns are aimed right at them, right? To come out of that and begin to run towards the enemy through this territory called no man's land, which is guarded by, uh, you know, uh, barbed wire. This is not a friendly thing. And to make it through no man's land is nearly impossible. To survive that is very difficult. And yet you are called upon by your commander to jump out of your trench and run towards the enemy. That's in a sense what is taking place right here. Winston Churchill could hide just in the government of Great Britain and let someone else take the heat, let someone else take the hit. Up to this point, Neville Chamberlain is taking all the heat, but he is being called upon to be the one that jumps out of the trench and runs towards the enemy. And I love this statement, the prospect of becoming uh, the prime minister, neither excited nor alarmed me. You see, he's ready for this. And I think that is a statement that I can resonate with in my life too, where I have been called upon by the spirit of God or by the circumstances to do something that is not pleasant. And yet in the moment, there's a grace for it. And it buoys me to the point where if you said, Eric, how are you standing right now? It's like, I don't know, but I just feel stabilized. I feel like God is in control of this situation. And I have a grace for the moment. And I would say that's exactly what Winston Churchill had. So on the screen, it says the moment of the man. I know there's been a couple other screens before this that have said the same thing, but that's because I'm drawing out these key moments. That's what this whole message is. So Belgium and Holland are invaded. The Twilight War ends. Total war begins May 10th, 1940. May 10th, 1940, to us in America, doesn't stand out as a date that we remember. We remember December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. That's the famous uh, President Roosevelt's uh, line when Pearl Harbor was bombed. But up to this point, we're stuck in a Great Depression, and we could care less of what's going on in Europe. That's Europe's business. That's not our business. We have problems of our own. However, if you're from Great Britain, if you're from France, uh, if you're from Belgium or Holland, this is a huge day. This is a day that marks uh, the beginning of what's called total war and where Hitler is no longer hiding anything. He is going all in and he wants to take Belgium, Holland and France in days and he's going to. I mean, this is going to happen so quickly. And so the meltdown of all resistance against Hitler is going to fade into the background very, very quickly. May 10th, 1940. So listen to Winston Churchill in his memoirs. The morning of the 10th of May dawned, and with it came tremendous news. Boxes with telegrams poured in from the Admiralty, the War Office, and the Foreign Office. The Germans had struck their long-awaited blow. Holland and Belgium were both invaded. Their frontiers had been crossed at numerous points. The whole movement of the German army upon the invasion of the Low Countries and of France had begun. 
So here's a, a map. Uh, I don't know that I could say that it's a great one, but it is the beginning of World War II and where things are at at this exact time. So the red country, if you're seeing this via video, it helps. If you're not, it won't probably make any sense unless you happen to know the map of Europe already. But the green, I'm sorry, the green. The red country is Germany. That's our monster uh, that is going to be attacking. The blue, uh, more near the top, is Holland. The green is Belgium. And the purple is France. And then that brownish gold color is Great Britain. And so I just have some arrows on the screen just to show Germany invading uh, Holland and Belgium. And then they're going to swing down into the purple France. And they're going to uh, take captive those three countries very, very quickly to the point that all that the all that is left in resistance is going to be the brownish gold country. That's all that's left to defend all of Europe. And uh, it's a very dire situation. And this is May 10th, 1940. This is happening right now. So the moment of the man. At the darkest moment in British history, the weight falls upon Winston. At 11 o'clock, this is Winston Churchill, I was again summoned to Downing Street by the Prime Minister. There once more I found Lord Halifax. We took our seats at the table opposite Mr. Chamberlain. He told us that he was satisfied that it was beyond his power to form a national government. The response he had received from the labor leaders left him in no doubt of this. The question, therefore, was whom should he advise the king to send for after his own resignation had been accepted? His demeanor was cool, unruffled, and seemingly quite detached from the personal aspect of the affair. He looked at us both across the table. I've had many important interviews in my public life, and this was certainly the most important. Usually I talk a great deal. Isn't that funny that he can acknowledge that? Usually I talk a great deal. But on this occasion, I was silent. As I remained silent, a very long pause ensued. It certainly seemed longer than the two minutes which one observes in the commemorations of Armistice Day. Then at length, Halifax spoke. By the time he had finished, it was clear that the duty would fall upon me. Had, in fact, fallen upon me. I was taken immediately to the king. His majesty received me most graciously and bade me sit down. He looked at me searchingly and quizzically for some moments and then said, I suppose you don't know why I've sent for you. Adopting his mood, I replied, sir, I simply couldn't imagine why. He laughed and said, I want to ask you to form a government. I said, I would certainly do so. Thus, then on the night of the 10th of May, I mean, just think about the day that he is coming into this position, this dream position that most you know, leaders in Great Britain would dream of. He is inheriting the leadership of a country that is in the most dire place it may have ever been. And he's going to inherit it at its darkest hour. Thus, then on the night of the 10th of May, at the outset of this mighty battle, I acquired the chief power in the state, which henceforth I wielded an ever-growing measure for five years and three months of world war, at the end of which time all our enemies having surrendered unconditionally, or being about to do so, I was immediately dismissed by the British electorate from all further conduct of their affairs." During these last crowded days of the political crisis, my pulse had not quickened at any moment. I took it all as it came. But I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. 
I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Ten years in the political wilderness had freed me from ordinary party antagonisms. My warnings over the last six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and were now so terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of preparation for it. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. Uh, I'm a, I, I love Winston Churchill. I love Winston Churchill writings. They're just fantastic. So I'm going to read this quote again and as I sort of head into uh, sort of the key biblical framework for this. Archibald Primrose said back in 1897, there are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. Boy, is that a good quote. So I know it seems strange. We're talking about what is wanted as a man, and then I put up on the screen Esther. Esther, what, what was wanted was a girl. <laughs> In other words, I don't think this is an issue of male or female. It's the issue of readiness of those that are willing to carry the man into this generation, carry the truth, to stand when everyone else sits, to speak when everyone else is silent, to do the hard thing when the hard thing may cost them their life. But that is what is needed to save the day. Every one of us esteems such a decision or such an action, but very few of us have been readied for such an action, which of course is all that really matters in this daily thunder is not to esteem Winston Churchill, to not to, not to esteem William Wallace or George Washington. It's to be that in our generation. We don't have to be them, but we have to be that which has the capacity which is congenial to the crisis. We must be readied for the challenges that are going to face us. We don't know when the moment is going to come. We don't know when our May 8th, May 9th, and May 10th will be. Our job is to allow the Spirit of God in, to clean house, to prep this territory, to make us readied so that when that moment does come, we stand up when everyone else sits that we can receive that challenge upon our shoulders and not shudder, but allow the grace of God to carry us through those challenges. So Esther, what was wanted was a girl, right around 470 BC. So I'm just going to read from the text of scripture this story. It's a great story. Esther 411 all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So Esther is making it clear to Mordecai that there is a very clear understanding in the castle. And that is, if you rise up and come to the king, that you, the, the basic thing on, on the record, on law, is that you will be put to death. There is the exception that the king could extend the golden scepter, but she's never been invited in in the past 30 days. So to, to take this step is so presumptuous. Esther 4, 13 through 14. 
This is Mordecai speaking. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, I know many of you have referenced this. This is a very common story if you grow up in the Christian faith. And of course, if you're Jewish, you know this story very, very well. However, there is a lot going on here in this story. In other words, what we seem to recognize through Mordecai's words is that she could remain silent. She could give up any participation in this. However, she's still going to be destroyed. Or she could act in accordance with what is right and what is true. And how do we not know that God didn't put her providentially in this position for this very occurrence? The other thing that stands out to me is Mordecai's statement, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. If you don't do something, it's not that God is going to be caught off guard, like, whoa, what am I supposed to do? He will deliver his people. God is going to get his due. God will accomplish his ends in this earth, but he desires to utilize vehicles known as men and women that have faith in him. This is his design. He is looking for Esthers. He is looking for Winstons. He is looking for Williams. He is looking for Georges. He is looking for those that in these crucial moments will say yes, yes. Esther 4.16, go, gather all the Jews who were present in Shushan and fast for me. So this is Esther speaking. She's decided what she's going to do. And gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. Wow. That is the sort of decision that I think all of us stare at in awe because our natural man is very familiar with running, with cowing, with coming up with excuses. But there's something here that demonstrates to our souls what is needed. She recognizes that she needs God's help, which is what a fast is. It is recognizing that in her natural man, she doesn't have it. But she decides that she will go to the king. And I I guess I just want to set it in front of all of us. We live in a generation where there is a very clear law stipulated. If you do these things, then there is certain death. Now, it might not be physical death, but it might be reputational death. It might be job death. In other words, who's dumb enough to do that? And yet, as a believer, you need to have the same resolve that Esther has. I will go to the king. I will do this thing. This is what is right in this hour, in this time of history. And I will go against this societal law, this political correctness. And if I perish, if my reputation (laughs) is destroyed, if I lose my job, if I lose my life, if I perish, I perish. For such a time as this, and then I say, God is wanting a Christian. I don't know that he's all that particular. If it's a man or a woman, I think he wants both. I think he wants ready vessels. And so I have a date on this. I've been putting dates on all sorts of other things, right? So I might as well put a date on this. Monday, February 20th, 2023. Huh, when's that? Well, that's today. In other words, 
This is the time. We have a Haman-like movement of evil in our generation that is vowing to destroy all. In that day, it was the Jews, but I would say it's all that have faith in Jesus Christ, all that are turning to God, all that are desiring Jehovah's rule and reign in this earth. And what God is wanting is a Christian. And he's wanting that today. The question is, is that Mordecai voice comes to us and and beckons us to act, to stand, to speak. Are we going to behave as a Winston, as a George, as a William? Are we going to behave as an Esther? Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Uh, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Truth has fallen in the streets and equity cannot enter. Uh Uh-huh. What is wanted is a man. Now, what is wanted is a woman. What is wanted is a man or a woman of faith. What is wanted is a man or a woman in whom the man dwells. The man who is the hero, who is the savior, who is the deliverer, who is the one who is truth, who is the one who is life, who is the way. That is what we carry. And God is looking to and fro, desiring such a man, such a woman to rise up and behave as they were were trained by the Spirit of God to behave. So I have a list here. But if I do something, dot, 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 we all know this list. Just like Esther knew what would happen if she stood before the king. You have your little list. You have your laws that you know of in our culture. But if I do something, what what do you get? Social ridicule? Mm -hmm. Mockery and disdain? Yeah. Loss of popularity, loss of position, loss of career, loss of legal protection, loss of freedom, loss of health, loss of dignity, loss of future, loss of life. Welcome to Christianity. This is how we live. We have grown up around a version of Christianity which says, well, if there's all these things, then obviously God wouldn't intend that. And I would say that is a misnomer. That is a misstatement. That is a, that is a redirect of all Christian history. Christian history goes straight into these things. We recognize that we are not called to fit cultural correctness. We are not called to appease the world around us any more than Neville Chamberlain should have been appeasing Hitler. We are called to rise up and do something, to stand for righteousness, to stand for justice, to stand for truth, to stand for the weak. This is our hour. Matthew 10, 39, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we're going to finish with this scripture, Jeremiah 5, 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know, and seek in her open places if you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes justice, who seeks the truth, I will pardon her. Uh, then you have the, the follow-up question. What if you don't find uh, one who executes justice and seeks the truth? You see, all that is needed is a man. And this is what is required in our generation. One person can change the course of history. It's not because that person is so, so special. It's because the God in whom that person has trusted is so, so special. You see, we are called to be the caring devices of this very man's agenda. 
But the question is, when those moments come for us, how are we going to handle them? Do we have a capacity built within us that is congenial to the crisis that we are going to face? Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.